You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Michael Katakis is the author of Dispatches, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and Excavating Voices, Listening to Photographs of Native Americans. He's also the author of Traveler, Observations from an American in in Exile, and Photographs and Words with Dr. Chris Harden. His work includes A Thousand Shards of Glass, a series of essays, and his news book is a collection of short stories, Dangerous Men. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you, Rick. As always, it's nice to talk to you again. You know, this work seemed to be uh, almost a direct outgrowth uh, of A Thousand Shards of Glass, your series of essays about um, many American men <laughs> in the last decade. Could you talk about deciding to go move from documenting reality in a way that is really, you know, a one-to-one correspondence to starting to write fiction where there's Maybe still a one-to-one correspondence, but it works works different differently. Sure. Uh, first of all, the reason that it's so wonderful writing fiction, I have to tell you, Rick. You know, it is such a pleasure to murder people in books because there's no con- <laughs> there's no consequence. <laughs> but the feeling is extraordinarily wonderful, especially when they're they're bad folks. But, uh, no, these stories, I think, relate to what life is for some people and ultimately all people. They are going to go through very difficult times. They're going to lose people they love. Uh, They're going to come at a point in their life when they know the end of things. And I was trying to get, I think the idea of the dangerous men was this idea of men of conviction, Uh, men who were people of their word, so to speak, Uh, people who understood the world or didn't and were victimized by it. This could be, of course, translated into what is happening to people generally today, not just in the United States, but around the world. I found fiction more freeing, and I found it easier to inject a kind of lyrical prose, a lyrical beauty in something that can be extremely ugly and horrible. And... uh, so the the concept of something beautiful contained within something ugly fascinated me. It, it interested me that as I read your stories, to a certain extent, I I felt them to be closest in any genre beyond just simple fiction to be closest to the horror genre, and, and it was interesting that, that you described you know the situations as horrible situations wrapped in beautiful prose, which I think is really an interesting contrast and creates from the get-go a a kind of tension that that takes us all the way through the book and through each story 
as fast as we need to be. But we have to remember that no matter how fast we're walking, we're walking on essentially sometimes literally barbed wire. Yeah. Yeah. I think for these people, these characters in this book, uh, life is hard. It has been hard in some cases. But it has also been uh, involved in a great love of life. You know, losing life, I'm coming to understand, you really have to love life uh, to feel its impact when you're losing it. And I do think many people, the characters in this book, love life. Life has dealt them a bad hand. Um, but they still love life and in their own ways are trying to regain that feeling that we all do of youth, of when the world seems young and and it seems like it'll go on forever. Uh, With time, if we're lucky enough, we live long enough where we are separated from such illusions And at first I used to think at a young age that that was bad. But it's interesting that, to me anyway, that something else opens up as you, irrespective of you have more yesterdays than tomorrows left. There's something beautiful that opens up about that too. But you have to be lucky enough to be old enough to get to that point. And that luck is a is a double edged sword in, in some of the stories in this book. In the first story, I think you do a great example of showing, you know, combining that, you know, the beauty and and the terror. And and let me just read a, a sentence that that struck stuck out of me. This is from a story called The Fence about a man who has spent much of his life maintaining a barbed wire fence. And he talks about his youth this way. First it would get quiet, and then everyone would be looking up at millions of stars trying to count the shooting ones. He loved those nights because it felt like he was bringing beauty into their lives. Talk about creating characters who understand the power of beauty and yet are caught up, trapped by their own intention and design in something that is ugly, dangerous, fatal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting, uh, Rick. I, I knew people like the characters in the fence, and uh, the demands of ranch life are accelerated sometimes. Like in war, you see life and death in a day the birth of something, the death of something. You don't have time to think and ponder it much while you're involved in it. And yet, many of those people that I knew always seemed to be aware and appreciative of the extraordinary beauty that surrounded them or the details of what was happening around them. A bird building a new nest in their favorite grove of trees, or 
the shooting stars or so yes there were a lot of demands there were a lot of there was a lot of work there was a lot of tragedy and there was a lot of violence but there was also this capacity to take in the wonder of the world and the beauty of it and to be awestruck by it now i would i would argue that within that world they were more aware of those things than city dwellers and uh, because of that, I think they became more of well-rounded characters, for lack of a better word. Uh, you know, you can't overly generalize. Uh, people are people. Uh, but that is what I remember about them, being completely aware of things around them, good and bad. The sensibility of your characters is really interesting, and to a certain extent, it to me, it seems foreign. I, I've always lived on the coast, near urban centers, in a suburb. There's a sense of busyness. The land is not really apparent to you because you're covered with houses or roads or strip malls or freeways or, you know, you drive past some hills that haven't been touched but then seconds later you're next to endless suburbs these characters live in a land that is large and barren and it seems to me that some of the emptiness of the world around them comes to haunt them in their souls yeah that's interesting i i think it does haunt them uh but I also think it is them. Uh, the land has forged them in a way of who they are. Um, the young couple who in Hunter's Moon who have come from somewhere else uh, are imprinted by the land, especially the field. And the moon and what's happening around them, they are slowly being imprinted over years and being changed by the land itself. So isn't it ironic that we humans are plowing up things, taking down trees, and we're changing the landscape without understanding that the landscapes are changing us as well? And... Uh, and and those changes sometimes come unawares. It just one day is. And I think that's what many of these characters uh, embody, is they embody a part of the land that has inculcated itself into them. And they are, that means they can be as harsh as the landscape, as cruel as it, and they can be as lovely and as beautiful as the landscape, too. I, I love the your sense of what makes a story in this book. Uh, these stories are, uh, on one hand, there are somewhat everyday tales of people in small towns and in places that, that, that these aren't big cities. Um, there, there's not a lot of action in it, in a sense. The action is both internal. These 
are roiling souls. The souls are just a boil. But and that all that boiling is taking place under a flatness that in a sense is imposed by the landscape. And I think that the conflict in these is largely within the people. So you talk about stories where the conflict is not, you know, there there are some some definitely some very bad people in this book who Yes, there are. But yeah. I, the And uh, I love killing them. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I must say it's it's uh, cathartic to read about, but I think that the conflict... I was thinking of putting a president in one of the stories, <laughs> but I, I just I became a little frightened. <laughs> <laughs> not not surprisingly, I, talk about the conflicts within the the characters themselves, try, between that kind of roiling anger that the the vitriolic yeah. anger and the placid beautiful world that they live in and that their lives unfold in a often in a very placid beautiful way yeah yeah uh i think i'm running into some issues uh with the book that i find uh eerie actually um in the 1930s Ernest Hemingway was writing, you know, Charles Scribner uh, of the Scribner family wrote about these stories uh, and said that they were very dark tales that reminded him of Hemingway's initial dark tales in our, of in our time, which, you know, is a terrible thing to do to a first-time fiction writer. It sets him up for failure. But, but nonetheless, uh, he was right. But people who have read this have come back to me and they first say, oh, I couldn't put this down. I couldn't. Well, thank you. That's wonderful praise for a writer. But on the other hand, they said, they're so dark. Could you can't you write something lighter? (laughs) Can't you write something happy? And I said, but I'm not happy. (laughs) Uh, uh, Teasing them a little bit. But Hemingway was asked. Uh, this about him, and he was said. He was. It was said that uh, someone, a doctor, had said to him, "We love your story so much, but couldn't you write something happy?" And then his parents criticized him, and returned all the books that he had sent to them. And he got very upset, and he said, "Now look, I'm trying to write the way people actually behave, and how fearful they are, and how angry they are, whatever." And uh, I'm trying to get it right. So today you may read a story that you really don't like. But tomorrow you may read one that you do like. Because to keep everything beautiful is just not real and you can't believe it. It has to be the whole picture. And he was correct. So in Hunter's Moon, for instance... This story is not going to go well. Um, But the love and affection and the life that that couple has lived is beautiful. Uh, It is like all great love. We have it for a time, and we know it cannot last. So, at least in Western culture, the idea of not lasting, 
one's death, one's end, is seen as completely a pejorative versus the continuation of the story to its conclusion. I, I think it you have a really fascinating uh, perspective on, on humanity because it, it is one both of terror and abhorrence, but also of deep understanding of great love. And as, as I read these stories, I could feel how much you loved even the, 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 the terrible characters whom you loved killing. Uh, I felt that as characters, as parts of the story, as parts of our lives, they were necessary, or if not necessary, they they were unre they were relentlessly actual and real, and and I I felt that you gave them space to live, and and these are you know some of these folks are, are extremely awful and, and yet you you do give them a space to live and there's almost a pathetic empathy that we have even as we're you know you might hesitate to step on the black widow spider but eventually you're going to do it yeah yeah it's That's, a beautiful creature that, <laughs> yes absolutely absolutely and uh you know, when the act finally happens, it is a monumental failure, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, when it has come to that extreme, it is everything else has broken down around it to get to that point. You're right. There are really horrible people in some sections of this book, and I'm sure some people will really rejoice in their fate and what happens to them. But it's important to know that that transient bookkeeper, Walter Lesser, chooses at the moment of finally making it to the last person who has destroyed his life. He makes a different decision. And he makes a different decision based upon something that intervenes in that house. And... Uh, he regains his humanity. He regains. He regains who he was. And in that is a strange, bizarre kind of redemption and justice. And I think that is as complicated as human beings are. I think if this was to be a metaphor, the last. Uh, uh, novella, the the final tally of Walter Lesser. What I found striking about it was that the corruption of these people I could see in real life today in Washington, D.C. The people he is going after are the same people cast of characters we're seeing right now. They seem untouchable, they seem insatiable with greed. <laughs> Their greed is insatiable. And what has to be knocked down 
to get what they want is of no consequence to them. And so these people exist. They're real. Um, I will tell you one thing. Uh, you know the story Hunter's Moon. Mm -hmm. uh, that was written over 15 years ago in a rougher form. And I remember I was with Chris and we were at the Frankfurt Book Fair and I had finished it, uh, I, I had thought, and gave it to her. And she was so frightened by the piece uh, because, as you know, it, it's somewhat autobiographical. And she was so horrified by it uh, that I put it away after she became ill. Uh, thinking that perhaps something was brought on by the words themselves. Irrational, I know, but there you are. And I put it away. And it was only with the encouragement of some other people that years, years later, I start to look at it again. So some of these stories are taken from life itself, you know, either in the imagination or in reality. I found, I have to admit that, you know, I read parts of this book with, with you know, tears in my eyes. And I think that you're, as a, as a writer, you have an intuition for managing an emotional arc of a story. That is, you have... And a, a good idea as you're writing, as you as you tell your story, what the reader's emotional state will be, or or how it will map, even not so much what it is, but kind of the general directions it goes, the the flow of the river of our emotional reaction to your stories is it follows the riverbed of the story you tell. Oh, that's interesting. And I'm wondering, as a writer, do you experience the, uh, uh, the same kind of flow of emotions as you create the situations, or, or do you read them, you know, write it, write it out kind of in a, in a trance and then read it back and, and understand what you've done, what you're doing to the readers by what you do to yourself when you read it back? Oh, that's interesting. I'll tell you how it works for me a lot of the time, is the first sentence reveals itself to me. Uh, I could be sitting there for days and weeks, and then something comes forward. And I go, hmm, I remember that. I remember now. How do I put it into prose? And then there's the whole center, the, the major part of the story, where I have really no idea where it may be going. But what comes to me very quickly is an ending. It's funny. Um, I see endings so clearly. And the ending starts to inform everything that happens prior to it. So what I've done, and it's interesting how you say map it and riverbed, 
I've never thought of it that way. But what it is, is it's, I've almost drawn two points on a map. Uh, here's where I am, here's where I'm going. How shall I travel there? And will it be a rocky uh, journey? Will it be more smooth? Will it be, will it be a, a, a sunny day, or is it going to be very, very rough, the weather moving forward? And that part of it is what I love and I'm frightened by because it's informing me as we're moving along. It's informing me. And sometimes it goes in directions, which happened once in this book, where I didn't want it to go. But I knew that was the correct place to travel. So even I, in argument with myself, that it was too harsh, that this was true. But then the question for me came, could it be true? And the answer was yes. So I traveled down that road reluctantly so. And you know, uh, Rick, the thing I don't want to get across to people is what I really don't like. <laughs> uh, uh, people, what they think is, oh, you know, isn't this romantic to write and to do all these things? I do see writing like wrench and screwdriver. You wake up in the morning, you have your cup of coffee or your cup of tea, take it in with you, and like everyone else, you just go to work. And you may have a good day or a bad day, but you go to work. You just go to work and try to carve something of consequence and substance during the day. In other words, try to do a good job. And for the, all those writers out there who would who are writing, I think they understand what I'm talking about. You just get to work and stop all the romantic posing. How will I sell this book? How much money you think I'll make from it? Just get to work. You know, um, I, one of the things about this book, and every story in it, these are super American stories. Yeah. In very much the way your book, A Thousand Shards of Glass, is about America. And, and, and I mean, you're a, a well-traveled man. You have a house, uh, an apartment in Paris, I think. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Which are unable to travel to at the moment because America right. is so on the outs with the, with the rest of the world. Um, talk about, I, I, I think that, you know, one of your books is tra Traveler is Observations from an American in Exile. Talk about writing about America when you're exiled in America and you're exiled from America. I mean, this is a very interesting... Uh, you've got yourself... You know, you're a ship in a bottle. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of describing it, and it's true. Uh, that's very true. Uh, I, you know, I recently read something about Sam Shepard, and I watched the um, documentary, which was wonderful, called Shepard and Dark, or Dark and Shepard, his years, lifelong uh, writing of letters to his friend Johnny Dark, and back and forth in their, their friendship. 
And when I watched him and he was being interviewed, I recognized something in him. He was uncomfortable everywhere. He was always on the move, driving here, driving there. He was a restless man and, and in some ways I think a little bit troubled. And when I saw that, you know, I don't look anything like him. I don't talk. My experiences aren't like But I recognized him. And I recognized that angst. I really recognized it. I am, I, I do think that I and so many others are a citizen of the world. I think the world is too extraordinary to just say I'm an American, I'm an Italian. I think we're really much more than that. Um, but I grew up in America. The land that we're talking about was Chicago not all the open spaces. But Chicago taught me a great deal about race, how I was poisoned from it from the day I was born. And now, thank goodness, we're having this grand discussion about race. This, this might be the next thing I work on, about the characters I remember in Chicago and how, how really tough it was. Um, but at the same time, don't you think, Rick, that one is when one is away from their nation, their country, for as long as I have been, that you see your country more clearly than those whose nose is pressed right up against the glass. You can see it from a distance. You can watch it, listen to it, feel it get the impressions of people around you who are from other cultures, other places, of how they're feeling about it. And a kind of nuanced clarity comes through that perhaps in my case at least has made me be able to hone in on it more sharply if I you know during this book writing this book do you know what I thought of a great deal I've thought a great deal of the last few sentences in the grapes of wrath um, and it, and someone has just written about this book saying that I've created with Walter Lesser a kind of vengeful Tom Joad which I found interesting but the Rose of Sharon giving her full breast to the starving old man after her child dies. That is one of the saddest things and one of the most generous things I've ever read. It's profoundly an American story, The Grapes of Wrath, but not that section, not that moment. That moment is international. You mentioned The, the Grapes of Wrath. And for me, um, that book has a really interesting resonance because on one hand, it's such a, a picture of our past and we think that this is something we've gotten past and that this can yeah. never happen again and, and, and that we've learned, we've, and the book is chock-a-block with, you know, observations that are timeless and you know we've we've we think we've learned from them but i just don't think we right. have and, and i i i think that you know 
when that book was written, Steinbeck had some, I think there was some hope in that book that, that what the things that he described would never have to happen again by virtue of him having described them so well. Yeah. And yet I I think we are not far from having a similar situation. Oh, absolutely. You know who else did that? Who you notice Orwell in his books Animal Farm and 1984 is basically uh, talking about Stalin mm-hmm. and communism. But when he was questioned about this in one of his essays, he said, well, the reason I don't really bring up fascism is because everyone knows and recognizes what that is and knows how terrible it is. Well, we don't know how terrible it is because it's here again. It never really left, but it's here again. And, uh, you know, if you, he wrote an article uh, in September 1st, 1944, and if you take out Soviet regime and put in Trump and Republican Party, his, his, the, the sentences were, um, please know that cowardice and betrayal, I think it was, must always be paid for. Don't think after your years of bootlicking for the Soviet regime or replaced with Republican and Trump that you can go back to mental decency. Once a whore, always a whore. Now, that view that we're talking about from 1944 fits perfectly in the time that we're in now. Perfectly. It may be apocryphal, but as I understand it, um, George Orwell's original title for 1984 was (laughs) "1948." Yeah, as he was working yeah. in the war office, and he said, "No, no, this—that's not a good one. Try something else." <laughs> yes. yes, yeah. It's, it, it, I've been rereading that, and it could have been written yesterday. Uh, It—it's just extraordinary. And you know, if someone wants to under the, understand the time we're living in right now. I think a few books would really help us go from the past. The Plague by Camus, uh, 1984, and uh, The Trial by Kafka, and uh, um, books of that nature. And you get a sense, wow, you know, or E.M. Forrester's uh, The Machine Stops. Mm, uh, one of my favorites. Yes. Yeah, mine too. And, uh, and, you know, these people were writing this in, in Forrester's case, you know, a hundred years ago, for goodness sake. And, uh, and so it's not like people don't know. It's like that people want to just be purposely uh, ignorant. I think in the Catholic Church, there is a term for it called invincible ignorance, which when you can no longer have a discussion with someone based upon some reason or thoughtfulness or uh, based in some reality, which is interesting coming from the Catholic Church, you just turn around and, and cut it off. Uh, invincible ignorance, which I think is a curious term, but there we are. So, uh, yes, I agree with you. These are American stories, but remember, like in Hunter's Moon, the characters have spent many years outside of the United States. 
in West Africa and in France and in Vietnam. And they come back to a place that they love or settle in a place that they love. But they, they love the land, but I don't know if you feel the same way, but they are never, they always remain somewhat outsiders. Mm. People who have come there, who love it, who've stayed, but are not of the land. You know, I, I think this is uh, one something that, that is not widely admitted or understood, what you're getting at here, it, it is this idea of imposter syndrome that I think many of us feel like in our, our native lands what we are, even when we're home. Even when we're at the home we've lived in for many years, we feel like imposters. Yeah. Yeah. I Well, I think this is the American condition. I've never detected this much, you know, in the people of Europe. You know, if they're, you know, I listen to the French and they say, you know, my family has been here for such and such a time. I, I don't think they concern themselves or feel these things in the same way. But Americans have always come or their families have come from somewhere else. You know, it's almost like we all went to a hotel. <laughs> and we don't own the hotel, but we love getting room service, you know. And <laughs> But we we just don't own the hotel. And the hotel is comfortable and it's wonderful and it fulfills our needs, but it's not really home. It's not home. And so uh, maybe that's what I detected in Sam Shepard when I watched uh, that. And I've been working with Ken Burns a great deal, and the documentary is now basically finished on Hemingway. And the same is true of him. He's moving about, moving about, moving all the time, a restlessness, and coming six miles, being born six miles from where he was born, and uh, not being able to tolerate Chicago after the First World War and all of that, I understand completely. I understood completely. And, um, yeah, I, I, I hope the book conveys that kind of unease and restlessness. Um, I hope it does in some way, because that would be true. I think that's certainly true of Walter Lesser. Um, I, yeah. I don't know. One one should be careful not to critique their own work very much, you know, or you start to get strange. It, you know, it struck me that as a photographer, you, you trend towards black and white by choice. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that carries over to your prose and, and your fiction as well. Uh, these these stories, they're, they're beautifully described, but... Uh, in a sense, I see them as all being shot when I'm unreeling the movies in my brain. I, I, I just realize they're all in black and white. <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. They're, they're high noon with mm -hmm. Gary Coop. I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I wanted to remove every word that was unnecessary. Every single word that was unnecessary, no matter what the word was. Does this mean lots of revision? Oh, uh, at least 70 rewrites. Wow. 
I, I think that I must have gone over this manuscript in polishing, you know, and it's not very long, for goodness sake. Um, and I love to polish. Uh, but I think it, the polishing took a year. I, I spent a year polishing 65 pages. Um, and I wanted everything that was unnecessary out of it. Because it started at about 130 pages. And I wanted everything out so that you were left, hopefully, with just the raw feeling. And um, time will tell if, that's, if that worked. But it worked for me in the final reading. And obviously it worked for the publisher, for my publisher. So, um, yeah. But I'm going to be dedicating myself more and more to fiction and occasionally essays and a book of poetry I'm finishing. I will tell you one thing that's really interesting for me uh, because it's so scary and it's so, I mean scary in terms of am I able to do it. I don't mean um, scary in another sense. Uh, but I'm, I'm trying to write a one-act play based upon the fence and, uh, and how that would work out. I have no idea. But I think a one-act play with two characters, one of which is lying dead, <laughs> is, uh, it, it intrigues me. You know, It just intrigues me very much. So uh, I don't know how to do a play, uh, how to write a play, but I'm learning. I'm learning. It's a whole other thing. Keeps the writing muscle going, you know. You mentioned you're working with Ken Burns on a, a documentary about Hemingway. Tell us a little bit more about this. Oh, it's uh, it's spectacular. I, I have to say, uh, Ken and Lynn Novick, uh, you know, who've done all these extraordinary programs. First of all, Ken and I have become friends. I like him a lot. Uh, I like Lynn a great deal. I, everyone connected with Ken and Lynn, who work together and have worked together for quite some time, are just fantastic people. They flew me and met a number of other people to New Hampshire, to Ken's property, uh, to spend two days uh, watching the episodes, commenting. They had John McCain's uh, chief of staff and dear friend, the, the senator had recently passed away, and he's in it briefly, and Margos, uh, uh, Mario, Mar uh, Mario Vargas Losa is in it, Edna O'Brien. I'm in it a lot, and uh, which really concerned me initially. But uh, he and his researchers were so diligent over the last four or five years, <clears throat> so extraordinary that they found out things that I didn't know about Hemingway and that Hemingway's son didn't know. And it is quite extraordinary. And they've done it, I think, a six- or eight-hour program. It's three, or it may end up being four episodes of two hours each. 
and it takes the whole, which I had always hoped someone would do, the whole span of his 60 years. And they have done it brilliantly. Uh, it is, you can't take your eyes off of it. It's beautifully done. But more importantly, it's incredibly substantive and gives a real picture of not the, just the writer, but the sensitivity, insecurities, problems of the man himself, and how difficult it is for art to be made, for great art to be made. Um, and so I was flabbergasted. And it's been, I'm sorry the project is over, because I have so enjoyed uh, working with Ken and Lynn and everyone there. I really have had a good time. A very good time. They, he came to visit me with his two children in Paris, and we had a lovely evening out in Paris before all of this started, this virus, this terrible virus. And, you know, we talked about poetry, we talked about art and history. It was one of those conversations that sparkle, you know, and <laughs> it was very good, very good. He's a very nice fellow. I'm really interested in the relationship between this book and A Thousand Shards of Glass and the reality we're living in today. In A, a Thousand Shards of Glass, you described an America that had completely fallen apart, that was divided amongst itself. He did that like 10 years before it was apparent, you know, completely and in a sense, in an ugly manner, apparent. So talk about I think this uh, collection of stories treats, works, speaks to the same themes of your essays, but with the voice of fiction. Yeah. Well, you know, both those books, uh, isn't it terrible? Isn't it terrible, Rick? Years ago, we did speak. You were very kind in your praise of A Thousand Shards of Glass. But isn't it very sad? that that book that was seen at that time as so extreme is now viewed as understatement. I mean, that is really a sign or a measurement that, uh, that is not to be proud of. Uh, I will say this. There is something about this virus and the Black Lives Movement everything that's happening right now that I am very, very happy with. And what it is, is for so many Americans, approximately 35% of them, who, may I agree with Mrs. Clinton, are deplorable. That Irrational belief is colliding with immovable reality. And this does not allow them to simply rationalize or deny because it's coming to get them. It's colliding. And I don't know if that will end up being as constructive and is helpful to making a better country. I have no idea. I hope so. 
but I don't know if that's the case. It's sure we don't have a lot of evidence for it right now. But this idea that you can escape colliding with reality has now pretty much is a moot point. Uh, it's affecting everything, uh, as well as our psyche. Well, I think, to my mind, one of the things that's been most frightening, and I think these stories speak to that, is that we have lost what we was once called consensus reality. There is no longer a consensus. It's been splintered, as in your book, into a thousand shards of glass. In your fiction, your characters are always one step away, um, literally, from con from reality that is not going to yield to argument or alternate facts. Right. Right. And that is the natural state of the world, isn't it? Mm -hmm. There is a point. Uh, it would be very nice of you as the tiger, which I do see this virus. It was explained to me by Patrick Hemingway, actually. He said, the reason people can't comprehend this is it's exactly the same as the tiger coming through the bush. Except when the tiger comes through the bush, your hair stands on end, your your body chemistry changes, you're, you're afraid. Here, you don't see the tiger, but the tiger exists nonetheless. And it, you, we have denied in this country reality about so many things and so many truths. Rick, you and I have talked about this before for so long. Uh, white people saying, well, I'm not a racist. Um, no, I don't think this is a racist country. Uh, usually white people are saying that and they don't feel it's appropriate to ask black people what they think, seeing that that's, they're the victims of it. No, no, we have the greatest health care in the world. No, 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 we're the greatest nation in the world. Well, unless you're trying to get swabs or um, protective gear for our frontline workers, huh? So all these, this myth of goodness, these illusions of our prowess, now we're confronting reality. Some people, till the end, will deny reality. And those people, we can no longer allow to be in government or to be listened to. Let them go on their merry way. I wish them well. But they cannot lead. They cannot lead and they cannot inspire and they cannot improve this country. You know, there's a very subtle fascism now that has... That has uh, mutated. I've seen it as I've traveled around the world right now. It's a new kind of fascism. And it's a fascism where you are destroying institutions little by little, taste by taste, judiciary, the press, but you leave just enough democracy over here to still believe that you are in a democratic society. And it's certainly happening here. Don't you find it curious that when, if we wanted to stop all this and actually save thousands of lives, only four Republican senators, four, that's all it will take, 
is to stop this president in their tracks. But we can't get four. It's the old saying, isn't it? Uh, That all it takes is for good men to do nothing. I would question if they're good. But that's where we find ourselves today. In the stories, people, I think, are more attuned to reality. And that was my experience with ranchers and people. They were more attuned to realities, not denial or fairy tales. Because the consequences of those denials and fairy tales was very swift. Here we have a cushion that's quickly eroding, if not gone on altogether now. The new book by Michael Katakis is Dangerous Men. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Oh, Rick, it's been a while. It's wonderful to talk to you, and it always is. And um, thank you for taking time with my book. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.